0: It's sure good to see you all here this morning. As those children are leaving and you grab your Bibles, please open them to Philippians chapter 3. I think this is one of those central texts that often gets missed in the book of Philippians. I think it's an important text for multiple reasons, but I think Paul gets to the applicational element where he begins to exhort the Philippians. How to find a good response to life's consequences, suffering, and pain. So, to the tired, to those who are struggling with bitterness and sorrow, this passage is for you. If you're physically tired, if you're struggling with chronic sickness, if you find yourself constantly wanting to get better and you're exhausted and you're wondering what God is doing, this passage is for you. To the tempted, those who under constant pressure are likely to give in to the promise of sin's joys and the promise of escape from suffering, this passage is for you. To those who are capable, to the confident, to those who look at life and, and find themselves able to manage it well, This passage is for you. When you look around and you feel the injuries and the suffering of life, you tend to think others are responsible. You tend to think it's others who hurt you and not your own sins. You tend to think it's other people's failures, and you think you're perhaps better, and you look down on others. This passage is for you. And to the good person, probably most notably the good person, the person that, that's confident that God's judgment, that God's anger is not against you because you're pretty good. You do right and religious things. You go to church. You are baptized. And you think because of these acts of goodness, God's wrath will never rest on you, then this passage is for you. I think in all of these ways, this, this passage is speaking to a church that having been. Hit by life's consequences of sin and suffering, the multiple responses which you see in the book of Philippians, like in chapter 4, there's fighting and division going on. I mean, so much so, think about this that the Apostle Paul gets notice of it 800 miles away when there's no electronic communication, there's no telegraph, there's no texting, there's feet and horses. 800 miles away, he knows they're having a fight, two ladies in the church. It is no small fight. This is not like Susie Q forgot to show up at your wedding shower. This is a serious injury that is soul deep. Can you imagine how much that would hurt the church and hurt people within the church and hurt these ladies? To these ladies who are in conflict, he writes these thoughts. To a church that stirred up to be terrified, according to chapter 1, he writes these words of comfort. To a church that's worried about their sweet servant Epaphroditus who nearly died, he writes these words of comfort. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers rejoice in the Lord. Now that sounds like a surprising note. They're hurting church. They're a persecuted church. They're a church that has division. Chapter 4 indicates they're a church in poverty. They're a church that's suffering. They have Epaphroditus who almost died. And his words of application are rejoice. Does that make any sense to you? This text is challenging all of us that in the middle of suffering, there is a righteous response or we will suffer spiritual decay. Look in verse 1 again. It's fascinating how he says this. Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me. And it's safe for you. When life hits us hard, when life hurts, when people around us sin against us, when there is cost to following Jesus Christ, the apostle Paul doesn't say, oh, you know what, I need to get some new applications. I never saw this trouble coming. He goes back to a repeated refrain And he says, hey, this is not a bad thing, and it's not a difficult thing for me to repeat to you, and in fact, this is how I keep you from defecting. This is how I keep the wear and the tear on your spiritual life from causing you to give up. Rejoice in the Lord. i just suggest to you that initially Paul's Launching application is a simple call for you and I to express joy in the Lord Jesus Christ, to express joy, and, and, and to be clear here, both in the person and in what he provides. That is, we, we are pursuing a person. Now, some of you guys, when I say that, you hear something I don't mean, which is we pursue someone who is merely human. What I mean is we pursue someone we relate to personally. Personally. You might pursue home improvement projects, but you don't have any relationship to them. They don't speak back to you. They don't comfort you. They don't challenge you. They don't interact dynamically with you. But you might get satisfaction from them. And there's some people who pursue Christ that way, but in fact, Scripture would challenge you that the pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ is one of the ways we express joy in him. As much as uh, the new romantic husband pursues his wife, Not merely by just thinking about her, but by spending time with her, by communicating with her, by listening to her. The believer pursues Christ by pursuing him and listening to him through his word and speaking to him and communing to him by prayer. Rejoice in the Lord. That's a command to express joy. Okay, big picture. Step back. Philippians are persecuted. They're suffering They're poor. There's division in the church. And in the middle of that burden and hurt and exhaustion, they're supposed to rejoice. Now, the contemplation of their joy is particular. It's the Lord. As opposed to those things that are robbing them of, I'll say happiness, just so we, we get categories better. But like, I, I would be happy if certain things happened in my life. Like, if my mortgage holder wrote me a note and said, hey, we made a mistake. Your house is owned free and clear. I would be happy. Right? Like, if, if, if certain events happened, if, if the university said, Mark, because of your profound awesomeness, we're going to let all your kids go to college for free, I would once again be happy. If my children said, Dad, our, our deepest joy is obeying you, keeping the house clean, I would be happy. But these are things that, that are not consequential nor eternal when compared to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, if we we're to go through this text carefully... I want you to jump down, because when he says rejoice in the Lord, I think we all recognize that we should pursue the person of Christ, but, but he is thinking this more concretely in terms of what Christ has done. Look down with me in verse 8, chapter 3, verse 8. Indeed, I count everything lost because of the surpre- surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. Now, he's testifying to a church that's lost stuff. They've lost the comfort of unity. They've lost the security of society. It's Persecuting them. They've lost financial security. This church has lost a lot. And he says, listen, I've lost so much for Jesus Christ. He says, but I count them as rubbish. On every Friday, I lose my trash. I don't count this as sadness. In fact, I count it as sadness when my son forgets to take the trash out, and I keep my trash. He is looking at, at the experience of his life and he's saying, I consider those things that were formerly valuable as trash in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ a righteousness from God. So here's why he can rejoice, is this world can burn to the ground But I'm good with God because I'm righteous because of him, not because of me and circumstances and situation and people cannot keep me from standing before God as one who is righteous. I've been granted this not on the basis of deeds done, but because of Jesus Christ. He continues on. He has this righteousness that's not his own. Verse 10 now. And he has the power of his resurrection. So, so the capacity to face the challenges of life and successfully endure the burden of obedience, which is a burden at times, does not arise from our own capabilities, but from the very power of God. He continues, and share in his... And we all stop right here. We're like, what? What? Okay, I like the power of his resurrection. I like getting righteousness. But to share in his sufferings, can we just like skip that part? Like, can I take the good stuff and not have suffering? Paul does not count suffering as a loss. Because he recognizes the theology of chapter two. The theology that Jesus preached to his disciples. Those who want to be first must be last. Jesus preaches that. We know that that's true up here. And then Jesus is like, you know, Mark, you need to step back a little bit and lose some of your place in life. I'm like, no! He's like, well, this is so I can elevate you for eternity, so you can experience the reward of my joy and glory. And it is like he has taken away from the, the most precious thing to me when he does that. Maybe it reveals that the most precious thing to me is me, rather than the privilege and the reward of Christ. When we read chapter 2 carefully, Jesus Christ's obedience and humility and death results, Scripture says, therefore God highly exalts him. The pathway to exaltation is through being low. We must go down before we can go up. And suffering is God's grace, calling us to follow Christ into the valley of humility so that he can exalt us to the glories of heaven later. We don't see it that way, do we? Look down in verse 19. He continues to call the Philippians to value and rejoice in the Lord with him. In verse 19, he contrasts this. Their end, the opponents, the people who are causing this suffering, and, and perhaps... Maybe the Philippians are tempted to join their side. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Their glory is in shameful things. And their mind is set on things of this earth. Do you want to be there? But our citizenship is in heaven. And we await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. This is the hope that we have. This is the the reason we can rejoice when this life is hard. We all know that in the years to come, we will have the opportunity to sit near sufferers, or maybe ourselves will be the one suffering. We might sit by the hospital bed of a loved one who's nearing death, and will soon pass into eternity. And we will speak words of comfort. And if we were just to listen in, in the whole hospital area, to those types of words of comfort, you're gonna hear people say dishonest and dumb things to give hope. Right, you're gonna hear things like, don't worry, it will be better. On no medical basis, just this Pollyanna outlook of things always get good for us, right? Or we gotta keep an optimistic outlook. But if you know their souls and their alienation from Christ and his righteousness, and the diagnosis of the disease that's killing them, there's no truth in those words. They're platitudes without an anchor to truth. And there's no hope in them. Or perhaps you hear these ones, these tragic words, they're in a better place now as you try to comfort someone at a funeral. And the one who's deceased is no friend of the Lord's and has never expressed faith in Christ. They're not in a better place. And they're, they're hollow words of hope. They set their affections on the things of, the, of this earth, according to Philippians. And, and now we're trying to comfort those around them, and rather than calling them to Christ, we give hollow words of comfort that are not anchored to truth, because they're not anchored to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the singular hope of the Christian? It is that Jesus is our hope in life and death. And so we express joy in him both as a discipline so that in the middle of suffering we do not set our affections on things on this earth, that we prove by faith that our citizenship is in heaven. In other words, we expose our true values, our true destiny, our true Anchor to what is good in life is is the heavenly stuff. Paul doesn't end there. He contrasts this. And so I think it's good for us to identify and reject false hopes. Look at verse 2. Look out for dogs. He is not warning of roaming dogs and canines going through the LA basin snatching kids. I don't know if anyone saw that recently. Coyote tried to snag a little two-year-old out of a dad's driveway. And he chased away and saved his daughter. This is not that type of warning. This is talking about spiritual dogs, not real ones, or not literal ones. They are real people. Look out for evildoers and look out for those who mutilate the flesh. There are three statements he makes, there. I think they're contrasted. With verse 3 then, for we are the circumcision, those who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ. And so these contrasts identify probably where the pressure is leading them to go. So if you have pressure, you, you are usually moved. You know, So if, if you're in a crowd and I push you, you move away from pressure. Spiritual pressure is probably leading the Philippians to find cover by walking towards the Jewish faith, which would have been accepted in the Roman Empire rather than declaring Jesus as Lord, which is a complete rebellion against the Roman Caesar worship, which declared Caesar was Lord. That's probably what's going on here. It's a little hard to know, but what is clear is these euphemisms are, are pushing against maybe the pressure to... Find in being Jewish culturally safety. It says, look out for dogs. Dogs were ceremonially unclean. They were looked down on. Um, I I think one commentary called them zoological outcasts. In other words, they were the low of the low. We might use a word like rats as as a kind of parallel, like in our culture. It's like, if I called people of a different, let's say, denomination or religious expression, if I called them rats or cockroaches, that would carry the same type of concept as this term here, but they were ceremonially unclean. I think that's also significant. That is, the Apostle Paul is suggesting to the Philippians that that the escape from the pressures of suffering to join those who are spiritually unclean and looked upon with disfavor by God is not actually a good choice. He also says, look out for those who are evildoers. Now, again, if he's kind of talking in this Jewish context, an evildoer is talking about their spiritually religious deeds that are done outside of and in rejection of Christ. In fact, look with me at the end of verse 3. He says, and put no confidence where? In the flesh. So he, That's the type of thing he's talking about. Those who do acts of, let's call it religiosity. Kind of that performance stuff. I don't necessarily trust in Jesus, but I'll go to church so God doesn't zap me. Oh, here's a good thing, I'll give to that because that's what good people do, and, and God loves good people, and I'll be okay if I'm good. Where, where you shift faith to what you can do. Frankly, baptism can be one of those types of rituals that people may think causes God to save them. So look what he talks about, the word he uses here. Those who are doing these types of religious expressions, kind of like the Pharisees that did a lot of stuff, God actually views it as evil doers. Rather than it being a righteous act to go to church and give money to God in hopes that going to church and giving money to God will save you, God does not look with favor on that type of self-salvation. He looks at that as actually doing evil. You guys might remember this verse from Isaiah 64, where Israel's doing religious stuff but doesn't love the God they say they worship. He says, all of your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Some translations have rightly understood that term and they'll say it this way, all your righteousnesses are as menstrual rags, ceremony unclean and not pleasant to think about. That's your offering to God in all your spiritual religiosity without Christ. Here you go. You should be pleased with this God, and he would not touch that with his holy hands or receive it at all. And Paul is saying, be careful that pressure does not push you to being under God's displeasure. As those who do evil, as those who are unclean, and finally he uses this word, mutilate the flesh. And this is a play in words with the the idea of circumcision. Circumcision, the English word is actually a helpful word for uh, for the Greek word. It means to cut around. He changes the word there for cut to pieces. So you have this medical procedure that's meant to cut around and remove and, and picture the ceremonial removal of uncleanness from Israel. And Paul is saying, actually, what's happening here, for those of you that are involving yourselves in this ritual of circumcision that formerly was a sign that you're God's people, you're just making mincemeat instead of doing something worthwhile. He says the same type of thing in Galatians. He's like, hey, listen, if you're going to do that thing, why don't you go the whole way and just make yourselves eunuchs? The apostle Paul has no tolerance for the person who moves faith and trust from Jesus Christ and places it in the things that they can do on their own. And yet we find ourselves, even within our culture, talking about good people and and pursuing a goodness and affirming a goodness in others. It is not uncommon to find people who look upon false religions that that are vehicles that will lead people with a false hope right to God's wrath, and we will affirm with soft words of, they're good people or I hope they're Christians. You know they're not. Paul has clear spoken words for that type of person. So, so to speak clearly to you all, you must be ruthless with looking for those areas of false confidences in your life and see them for the spiritual cancer they are. Why does God love you? Why? Because of Jesus. That is both shaming and securing in the same breath. Because there is nothing attractive in you by which God says, ooh, I like him or her. I'm going to say them. I want that type of person with me forever. Listen, God could handle heaven without you. He does not look at you and say, ooh, you're so wonderful. I need you. He looks at you and loves you because of his incredible love. And the embarrassing thing is, we are worse than cockroaches when God evaluates us with his honest inspection. We are more, excuse me, yeah, we are more disgusting, less attractive than cockroaches. I have never once been tempted to have a pet cockroach. The only good cockroach is a. And despite how disgusting we are in our sin, God loves us. And so my security as someone who still has tendencies to be cockroachy is not that I can get rid of my roachiness, but that God's love is never dependent on me not being roachy. It was always anchored to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul gets it so clearly in now he's looking at the Philippians and their temptation to put false confidence in, or to put true confidence in false hopes. And He says, don't you see what you're doing? They are not good hopes. Don't hope in circumcision. Don't hope in your good deeds. Don't hope in being clean in, in ceremony. Joy and celebrate and delight in Jesus. In fact, he says it so clearly. Look in verse 3, the contrast here. So so we need to identify and understand our false hopes. We need to express joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this last one, similarly, understand and hope in Christ's work for you. I think there's application then. It's not just this, this generic I love Jesus talk. Verse 3, we are the circumcision. He's talking to a whole bunch of Gentiles who aren't circumcised. The point is, is that physical circumcision is now irrelevant if you believe in Jesus. And in fact, the danger of getting physical circumcision for those who believe in Jesus is that might become a false confidence. We are neither saved nor stay saved by being faithful. You don't. People who are saved stay faithful, but you're not saved because you're faithful. And he tells them, this is, this is how you truly are cleansed before God. Colossians 2 and Deuteronomy would use that word for circumcision as something that happens internally by the grace of God. I think more normally, we would use the word regeneration. Or, or perhaps for those of you who don't like Big, huge theological words because you're normal. You like words like born again or made new. So 2 Corinthians 5 would say that. We are new creatures because we are in Christ. We have been made new. And so now we interact and engage with the world in a whole new way. This is what he means when he says you are the circumcision. You no longer are typified by being enslaved to a sin nature you've been freed from that sin nature you have been implanted with this new nature that is from Christ and energized by the spirit and in this the believers to rejoice go back to philippians chapter 2 12 and 13 he says do this because god is at work in you to make you willing willing you know the unbeliever has no desire To do good in an act of submissive love to their creator. The unbeliever wants to do good to be their own savior. They want to do good maybe because it's therapeutic. Because it is better to give than to receive. It is good to do good. It feels good to do good. But the believer does good to please God. The unbeliever has no God word compass in their soul that leads them to do good. Even the fact that you are here this morning as a decision to please God is an act of God's grace in your will. That's stunning. You have never wanted to do good that God will approve of without God first working in your will. And he works. You're here. You say kind things to your children and call them to follow Christ not just because you love your children but you love the Christ you call them to. You endure suffering for the sake of Christ. In fact, you do things that might lead to more suffering because you love Christ enough to suffer for Him. That is because of the heart being circumcised. Do you know Christ and has He made you clean Look again in verse three. It's not just that we're circumcised spiritually, we're also doing this for, for really the circumcision who worship. That's the idea of minister, that's the idea of labor. So rather than having evil works, we have worshipful works that are energized by whom? Spirit of God. Not only has he given us this new nature regenerated us, but then he comes along and dwells with us and helps us. We do this by the Spirit of God. Have you ever been given a task you cannot possibly do? Have you ever been given an impossible assignment? I think my children feel like this on a regular basis in math class. I used to be able to help Now I'm just like, "Eh, you got to watch a YouTube video. But at least for for my eighth grader, I can still help. And she'll come home, and she'll be a little bit overwhelmed and not understand the assignment, and I will sit down next to her and try not to do all her work for her, because that's just easier. And I aid her, and I help her, and I instruct her. And sometimes I'm like, no, no, no. That's a plus, not a minus. Maybe I'll write some math numbers down for her, and help her. The Holy Spirit does so much more than that for us. And he is the constant possession and seal and helper and witness in the believer's life. He turns on our understanding so we get Scripture. He empowers our doing of Scripture. So when the apostle says, There's on one side people who mutilate the flesh, who are evildoers, who are dogs because they're unclean before God. On the other side, there are those of us who've been made new and are empowered by the Spirit. He is looking and he just sees this massive value difference between these two. Who wants this? And yet to avoid suffering, to get what they want, they might give in and go back to the loss of all that Christ has done. Finally, he says, we glory in Christ Jesus. Now the contrast there with put no confidence in the flesh I think helps us understand what he means. Rejoice in the Lord, he says in verse one. Now at the end of verse three, he says, we don't put confidence in our our own ability, the flesh. Try to put that on this side and keep it consistent with the bad side. We we, we put no confidence in the flesh but we boast in, we put confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. We celebrate Him and our hope is in Him. That word for boast there definitely has that idea of confidence but it's a joyful confidence. it's, It's not like you think Jesus might eke out a last minute triple overtime victory here. The idea is that that you have every expectation that Christ will do all that He's promised and He will not break a sweat or risk not winning. You know He will. You're confident in it. And He's your joyful boast. We boast and glory in Christ Jesus rather than putting any confidence in what we can do. Now, again, the Apostle is not saying, so therefore do nothing. He is saying we actually worship and serve by the power of the spirit and, and we glory in christ who energizes it and helps us to do these things now let's step back again and ask the context here the whole letter of philippians this is a central theme and he's looking at a church that's hurting and he says rejoice in the lord he doesn't say hey don't worry you'll, you'll get out of jail soon hey man tomorrow I know wealth is coming for you. You've planted that seed money, God will pour out rich blessings on you. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey, don't worry. If you endure for a little bit, life will get better tomorrow. He doesn't say God will squash the evildoer in this life. He does not say that. He says rejoice in the middle of suffering, in the middle of sorrow, in the middle of loss, in the middle of painful experiences, in the middle of division that's probably tearing your soul in two, rejoice in the Lord. I want to draw a picture of two families. I imagine you are working in emergency services and you you pull up, you see a couple houses in fire, and you're there to help them, and fires are mostly out, and you're seeing some of the medical services do, do their thing. And seeing the firemen cleaning up and putting out the last of the flames, and you see two families. And, and you're just struck by the contrast between these two families. And you look at one family, and you just see abject sorrow. Clearly, their house is just burned down. There's despair. There's hopelessness. You can tell they are lost, as lost can be, about what to do. They're crying on each other's shoulders. They can't put two coherent sentences together. The world has just ended for family number one. Their house is burned to ashes. And you look over at family number two. And you wonder what has gone on with this family. It looks like they've been through the war. Clothes are singed and burnt. But they're happy. They're smiling. You can see the tear tracks through the ashes on their cheeks, but they're tears of joy. You can actually see that they've been burnt a little bit, but they're happy. As you begin to investigate, you realize that the happy family was asleep in their beds when the fire started. As you interview mom and dad, you realize that they ran outside and realized that two of their children were inside as the house was burning to the ground. And so dad dies through a back window, rescues two of these children, runs through living flames and gets out. And he's a little bit singed. He's lost some hair. His clothes are torn, but their two kids are safe. And you see mom and dad and kids crying in sweet relief and joy that they've been rescued from death. So you interview the other family, like, what's their problem? Well, they've just come back from vacation. And their house is burnt down. The difference between these two families would be that one recognizes how precious a treasure is the life of their children. And they can rejoice in the rescue of what is precious and valuable. And family number one, who's just miserable, never had threat of life. They never realized what jeopardy they could have been in had they been home. They just come home and they've realized they've lost their stuff. And as you ask further questions, you realize they live in a rental house. Like, it's not even theirs. So you ask them why, why they're so happy despite the fact they lost all their stuff. They're like, it was a rental house. We're not going to keep it anyway. Paul is telling the Philippians again and again, We are living in a rental house. It can burn to the ground. You have Jesus. Like, what is the worst this world can take from you? Only the things of this world. They have no power to take away the things of heaven from you. They can take your money. When you get to heaven, God has promised really carefully and clearly that those who lose in this life will receive a hundredfold more And more beyond that. So when the world threatens to take away something that gives us some type of temporary comfort, like our rental stuff, God promises to return it eternally in permanent stuff. And I don't think he's calling on us like, hey, take it, just so we can, like, get more. But this is what the person does who's Suffering. I'm going to rejoice in the Lord because this is what is valuable and precious. And like the family whose children are rescued, they're celebrating what's precious because they get it. The family who's mourning their rental home, we understand that, but it's a rental home. Aren't you happy your kids are safe? Christians, if we're going through trials and we're mourning, we are that family. We're looking at the loss of a rental home and we're sad. It's not even our home. It wouldn't last. It's not a, we've lost nothing of real eternal value when we suffer in this life. This is why one family can rejoice. So my question to you, Christians, is how do you combat spiritual decay that happens in suffering? And here's how. Rejoice. In the Lord. You rejoice in him. So let me just give you a couple like, simple spiritual disciplines. Sit down and rejoice in the Lord. I realize that might have come by a little too fast, maybe a little complex, so let me really carefully say it again. Express joy in what Jesus has done. Pursue the person of Jesus and pray to him. Read his Bible and delight and worship Jesus. It's not complex. But it is one of those disciplines that's really hard because when life is hard, when you're struggling with anxiety, when despair or a panic attack just rips your soul away from peace and shatters your world, sitting down with your Bible and praying feels like climbing a mountain. That's why there's a little bit of faith and discipline in the act. Do you love Jesus when life hurts? Do you discipline yourself? Again, if if we have a command here, rejoice in the Lord, and he's talking to church suffering, I don't think he's saying, hey, wait till you get through the suffering and the sun shines and the clouds go away. Then you should go to worship services. If the Lord... Is allowed suffering to come in your life, you are feeling the temptation to give in to sin, to stay away from the body of Christ, not to read your Bible, and prayer feels like you're talking to a God who's not there. Faith sits you down with an open Bible to rejoice in the Lord. So do it. It's a discipline that leads to spiritual survival when suffering hits you. Rejoice in the Savior and in his work and renew your faith in him. Remind yourself of how good it is to be his. Remind him of all the grace that is yours in Christ. Remind yourself that the world and all of its treasures can burn to the ground, but if you have Jesus, you have everything you need. Rejoice in the Lord. It should not surprise you that the apostle in chapter, in chapter four will tell the two people who are dividing, Udia and Sintiki, Find agreement in the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 4, he reminds it again. Rejoice in the Lord. It shouldn't remind you that if you read the Psalms, you hear phrases like this in Psalm 37, rejoice in the Lord. This is not as though Paul's like, hey, I have found the secret. You have never heard this before. But sometimes you just need to be reminded, life really does hurt. It is so easy to count the cost again and again and again. And again, and and we forget how sweet it is to have Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your precious savior. Thank you for our king who is sovereign and in his goodness allows us to suffer with him that we might partake in his glories. Father, we thank you that you have given us an opportunity to express to a world our true and living faith in Jesus Christ by following after Savior even when it's costly, even when life hurts, even when circumstances confuse us because we do not understand why in your good kind providence you would let such harm come to us thank you for giving us an opportunity to hold on to you with steadfast faith lord i ask that you would strengthen our church to express delight and satisfaction and joy and hope and confidence and glory in and boasting in our savior jesus christ and I ask that you would strengthen us to do this. It is often hard for us to see past the suffering, to look around our hurt, to see Jesus. So I pray that you would give us a deep gratitude for all that we have and for the person who is our king. We ask that you might do this work and grace in us. In Jesus' name, amen.